mean, I watched them drag this person, brain leaking out the back of their head, across the road and flick some rocks on him and put a flag on it and walked away. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out there to take That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Philip Thompson is the federal member for Herbert and an Australian Army veteran. He deployed to Timor and Afghanistan and was blown up by an improvised explosive device. He represented Australia at the Invictus Games in 2014 and now represents Townsville in Canberra. This is his conversation with Angus Horden. I'm Angus Horden, speaking today with Philip Thompson, OAM, MP. Philip, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me, mate. I appreciate it. So, Philip, let's kick off. Where were you born? I was born in Armidale, New South Wales, but I didn't spend much time there. I was born there and then uh, I moved with, with my mum to the Sunshine Coast and lived in Kiwana. And can you tell us a bit about your early childhood? Oh, to be honest, I was a bit of a rat bag, um, a bit of a troublemaker. I grew up with a superhuman of a mother who raised three kids all by herself, and I'm the eldest. I didn't enjoy school, didn't enjoy learning, wanted to play sport, wanted to cause a bit of trouble, which I did. Had to rely on my mum to be mum and dad and to teach me, you know, how to how to shave, how to, you know, be a, a young man and didn't do much schooling either. I left school quite early and went in, did some concreting and some block laying and you know, if I stayed with that now we'd be we'd be making a killing uh, with the trade shortages. And then I just wanted to, to do something more. I wanted to find myself in a sort of place of service. And that's where I kind of gravitated towards the Defence Force. But I didn't have the education to get into the Defence. So I had to do night schooling to get the, the minimum maths and English for year nine to be able to join. It was an interesting time growing up, but my mum is an absolute superhuman. So, Philip, do you have some military history in your family? No, no, I don't. No military history in my family that I'm aware of. I kind of gravitated towards the military was I had a mentor who kind of was trying to bring me out from being a bit of a rat bag as a kid. And he had military history in the New Zealand Army. And he told me about what he did and life of service and what it meant to him. And I was just I was drawn to it. It wasn't about reading novels or watching movies or, or having a thought of previous wars. It was this person who is a role model to me had grown up, gone into the army and come out like this awesome human. I'm like, I want to do that. I want to, I want to do all the cool stuff that he was telling me about. And in particular, what was his service? Oh, he was in the infantry. So uh, he was in the New Zealand infantry, you know, similar to, to our infantry with the operational time then, uh, as well as the different training. So when I finally went to the recruiter and I said, I want to be in the infantry, and this person looked at me and said, you want to use a rock as a pillow, sleep outside, be away from your family. And I'm like, I don't have a family. I'm, I'm not even 18 yet. I, yeah, I just want to get involved. Let's, let's do this. What's, this. what's this helicopter and rappelling out look like that I've heard about, which was a lie. Those recruiting videos were lies. That's, that's how I kind of was gravitated towards military service. So, Philip, at the age of 17, back in 2006, you join up. What inspired you to do that at the time? It was a wanting to serve, so not really about anything more than I wanted a life where I believed that I would be able to contribute, a life of service, a life of, and something where I could offer. I didn't really know much what I was going to expect. So once I jumped through all the educational barriers that I found myself um, having and heading to Kapuka, I uh, my mum didn't think I was going to make it because, you know, rat bag as a kid, problem with authority, causing a bit of trouble. But when I, when I get down there, I loved it. 
It was everything that I thought it was going to be and more. I loved the discipline. I liked being kept on my toes, pushed in the right direction, make mistakes, learn from them, grow from them. Had no problems with being away from family or away from where I was living. So it was very different to what my mum and peers thought that I would do and in getting there and being able to grow at Kapuka and then into Singleton, which is the infantry training school, it was fantastic and I really, really enjoyed it. How did you find basic training? It was good. It was uh, 90 days, so it was, it was three months. I found it enjoyable, interesting, learning, camaraderie, the first kind of time where you're bound together with people with a, a common purpose, all from different cause though. So not everyone was wanted to be in the infantry. There was some people that wanted to be cooks, artillery, cavalry, things like that. So that was interesting, but it was an eye-opener and it was the first step before your actual initial employment training. So once you get through that gate and getting into Singleton, it was a good achievement. When you look back, what my mum told me, how, how I was growing up, well, I shouldn't have finished it. I should have been upset with being yelled at and left, but it was complete opposite to what I was doing as a kid. So Philip, are you in touch with any of the guys that you did basic with still? No, not basic. Some people from IETs, so at Singleton, but most people just from the unit because that's when the, the brotherhood really grips in and gets tight. So you're posted to one RAR in Townsville and it's not long until your first deployment comes to Timor. Yeah, so get posted to the 1st Battalion Royal Australian Regiment the battalion is already in a high tempo space where we've got people going to Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor, and I think at the time still the Solomon Islands. So the whole battalion's moving. Everyone's going everywhere. So when you get there, it's not like you normally would see. There's, there's people getting ready to deploy, people saying goodbye to families. It was good though. Like So everyone looked after each other, everyone kind of bound together. When I went to East Timor, it was the first time that Everything you trained for, you did. Whether you're out on patrol or where you look to get support or things that were not enjoyable were happening, you looked to your left and to your right. The brotherhood was there and your mates were there to be able to pull you through it. So it was the first kind of time where you really tested your resilience, but it was also a time where it brought the small team and everyone closer together. And what was your role in Timor? It'd float. Like I was the lead scout one day, I'd be on the the radio, the next. It, it was a junior deployment in 2007. It was peacekeeping. It wasn't wasn't like in a federal or, or anything like that. It was a peacekeeping role, still very important to do. It was a time where we could learn our, who we were and our different positions and different places and different roles while getting mentored by a Lance Corporal and a Corporal and above. Any particular experiences or memories from that time? Oh, there's probably two. The first one was when I walked past a buffalo. Now, I know it sounds weird, but they're huge. It's not like you'd think in a movie. It's not like I've never seen it. I'm a boy from the Sunshine Coast and never been overseas before. And next thing you know, I'm standing next to this big beast and with horns and it was terrifying. Yeah, so that kind of stuck with me. That I don't know why, but that's one of the things that stuck with me. And the next one was doing helicopter vehicle checkpoints. So helicopter, Blackhawk would pick you up and you'd fly and there'd be a car, vehicle, motorbike target and it would land in front of them, uh, like on the road, and you'd jump out and search the vehicle. That was pretty cool. And did anything come from that? No, no. no. This time in East Timor, they were, they were still flinging darts, so the, they'd have a screwdriver and kind of not melt it down but kind of scrape it down and that would use as a slingshot. So they're still, you know, shooting that at each other, not at us. They don't throw rocks at us, the gangs that were there. There was no extreme or, or anything that would come out of majority of our vehicle checkpoints or any of our searches. So in May 2009, now a couple of years later, you then deploy to Afghanistan. What were your early days like? Afghanistan was different. I know when you think about it, like East Timor to Afghanistan, yes, of course it's going to be different, but it was a heat that I've never felt before. There was a taste in the mouth and a smell that you've never experienced. The people are different. Depends where you go in Afghanistan or if you're in the north or the south, the people change and it is extremely surreal. And everyone thinks Afghanistan, oh, dust everywhere and there's going to be heaps of sand. Well, there's this green belt that is vegetation and it's trees close together and it's just how you would think in towns all out at, at high range, but a bit more greener. Like it's luscious greenery in one part and then 
sanded dust as far as you can see away from it, but no one lived out there. They all lived down near the water source where it was green. So my first kind of experience or my first couple of days there was getting onto a helicopter and flying out to a patrol base called Patrol Base Cutis, far away from the main base, and it was with a very small number of Australians. And when we landed, we were trained up and exposed to that area and the patrol base in that part of the country by the, the unit previously who were ripping out. It was the Wild West at that time. Like You'd see people walking the streets with, with weapons, with AK-47s. There could be local militia. There was no formed army you were fighting. So it was a time of great concentration to make sure that you had your wits about you. What was it like working with the Afghan National Army? Hit and miss, hit and miss. So the ANA, my job, I was in the operational mentor liaison team. So our job was to train the Afghan National Army. I was a marksman, so my job was to train their marksman or, or their sniper on, on how to best utilise the long rifle. Some were good and some were, were horrible. But they've been doing this for a long time, not so successful. Doesn't mean that they're very competent with the weapon or anything like that. Some are. The language barrier wasn't as challenging as I thought because majority picked up a little bit of English here and there and we picked up a little bit of Pashtun or Dari on the way. On patrols, it became a little bit difficult because we like to patrol with our weapon in a certain place. We like to scan our arcs. They don't always want to do that. They may take a break to go for a smoke or to grab some food where we're worried about. The this. smoke giving us away. Yeah, oh, and this is a bad area. There's bad people here. Like, I don't really want to see people sitting down, yeah. eating some fruit, having a smoke and putting your feet up. Yeah, I don't, oh, want, to, I don't want to stop here. No, look this way. Make sure you're, you're covering your arcs. And we were very tight. There was, I think, five, five Australians on a patrol, 15 Afghan National Army soldiers. So if they all take a break and we're in the middle of nowhere with five Australians, I'd still back us to do well. But I'm like, come on, this is your job. We need to teach you how to fight because this is your country that you need to take over. My first ever patrol in Afghanistan uh, went up a thing called the Sphinx feature. That was next to the patrol base, massive. It was known to have IEDs on it. And so we get halfway up, the commander of the unit we're taking over, or the might have been the captain there, said, oh, we think that's an IED. So they give me a Garrett wand. I'm 21, 21, just a baby. They give me a Garrett wand. It's this big. So know. Phil, can you explain? Well, a Garrett wand is what you used to get at the airports that the, they'd run over you as a metal detector. It's 30 centimetres long, something you shouldn't be looking for IEDs with. But they gave me this and they said, we think that's an ID. Can you go check? I went over shakingly. Got and is this your, your first First dive? patrol. Like, it was ridiculous. Anyway, I get down and I'm shaking a bit and they're walking down the hill, hiding behind the rocks. And I quickly run it over. I'm like, oh, okay, didn't go off. I'll do it again. Didn't go off. I'm like, nah, it's good enough for me. There's none there. But that's horrible, right? Like, I should never have done that. I'd never do it now. And I thought it was a stitch up. But no, that's, that's how they were doing it because we didn't have engineers at the time or we didn't have engineers in the training team. So if you saw an IED, you can run that over and have a best guess and see if it's there. But that was like the first exposure into, into patrolling. And then as we kept patrolling and building relationships, building schools, wells, going out trying to find the enemy, there was a time, it was early morning, a couple of months into the deployment, I was in the gym and I saw two Blackhawks nearly touching the trees, just banked hard, just flying extremely hard and fast. It was weird. That normally means something's happened. And so I run up to where our radio was and I heard there's been an IED strike. There's a prior one and a prior four. Prior one means someone has life-threatening injuries and if they don't get to a medical facility very soon, they will die. Prior four, someone's been killed in action. We're trying to find out what's going on. We're asking, we're calling, we're on radio, radio silence. I've woken everyone up. No one's telling us what's going on. I know that it was Alpha Company and it was one of the combat teams. We know everyone, right? So in your, in your battalion, you know everyone. It's a very tight, small group. Oh, it took hours, right, to find out what happened. And we finally got told Paul Warren had lost his leg in the IED strike. And then it took some more time to find out Ben Renato was killed in action from the IED. Ben was a very close mate of mine and close to many people in the battalion. And it was surreal. This doesn't happen. We know that in combat, people get injured and killed, but you don't think it can happen to you or your friends. You don't experience it. And it was still so surreal where 
it didn't affect me straight away. I didn't think my friend has been killed or my friend has, has lost his leg. And, and Ben, before I left at the airport, he was seeing me off and he said, because we left earlier, he said, mate, you're working with the Afghan National Army. Be careful. It is dangerous. That's what he said to me. He was more caring of everyone else than he was worried about himself. And so the peanut gallery of the leadership decided to send us out on a patrol after we'd just been told our mate was being killed to try and distract us. Stupid, stupid. Went out, we patrolled well, but we weren't focused. We weren't mission focused. We are focused on our friend, his family, a friend that's lost his leg. And so they made the call halfway through to pull us back. And as they pulled us back, we got a phone call saying, we'd like you to come back to Tarankau, the main base for the ram ceremony. I agreed. Another person, Sean O'Loughlin, who was in my team, he agreed as well, of course. We went back to, to Tarankau and we got there before Tupleton, who lost Ben and Paul, got back. So we were there first. They were still travelling back. It still wasn't real. It still wasn't real. It was just in my mind. We walk out to where this big white conix was. And this big white conix is a freezer. And out the front of that freezer was a photo of Ben. That's where he was. Then it became real. I've never, never felt emotion take over my body like that day. We had uh, someone posted up the front watching over and we all got together. All these mates got together. We had to come up with who's going to carry the coffin, who's going to read the eulogy, who's spoken to his family. So we, we started putting ourselves in taskings. So we're like, we need to, to send our, our brother off. I'm not a very tall person, so I couldn't jump on, I couldn't carry, couldn't carry the coffin. Wouldn't be able to pair with anyone else. So I was the eulogy reader. So I wrote a eulogy. Couldn't read it. Every time I read it, I'd cry. I just couldn't, I couldn't talk. I was a babbling mess. I went to where the phones were to call my mum. As I called her, I couldn't even, couldn't even speak. But she's now heard on the news that there's been an Australian soldier killed in action. And I was trying to tell her how I was feeling. It was my friend, person I called a brother. I couldn't even get it out. She just knew. And she just said, you got to do your best. So I hang up on her. Didn't think that was the best advice. I'm trying. And I get back. I give my eulogy to two other people and say, if I get up there and I can't speak, I need you to read these words. So we get out and we, we send our mate home. And I read this eulogy. I swear in it. Got all these generals sitting at the front. All of his mates are pushed outside. It was disgraceful. Got media cameras in there. We get told, make sure you, you do a good job for the media. It just nah, it pisses me off. I don't care about the media. All I care about is honouring my brother. I give my eulogy. I get in trouble. I get told, you'll come see me later. I told that person with some four-letter words what I thought of them. We carried our mate and put him on the plane and sent him home. And as we sent him home, as soon as the wheels are up, everyone's back to work. There is no time to mourn. We spend a couple of hours reflecting, and then the next day, we're on a helicopter back out to the job. When we land, it's kid on, and you're out on a patrol. And you have to put all your emotion and all your thoughts in the back of your mind, which later will come out and eat you alive. But for now, you're mission focused, you're mission ready, and you've got to be front side focused. We just pushed all that emotion further down and down. About four weeks later, five weeks later, we're on a patrol in a place called Kujvar Army, I believe it's how you pronounce it. And we're walking through this crop. Like I said, I'm not very tall. So when one group went one way, I can't see over it, I went the other way. So they went left, I went right. And as they went left, I found myself in an aqueduct. And an aqueduct is the irrigation system. On either side of the irrigation system, there's sometimes some mounds. And all my team has, has gone to the left. And they're, you know, probably 100 metres away. Over time, the, the, the distance gets, gets greater. And uh, I saw a person, like through the kind of clear field, elevated, 
and they were standing not on a veranda but but sort of like a veranda in, in their koala, so their house. It looked like they were counting our people. So looking down and they were looking back and forward and I thought they were counting. So I got on the SPR, the radio system, and I said, wait, just wait. Because there's something weird about this. So I got behind my rifle, took a sight picture, speaking to the team. They've stopped. And as they've stopped, where the last person was probably about to get out of sight, this person raised a rifle. And as they got to about where their hip was, I shot him in the face. He dropped, went down. All commotion broke out there. Our A&A have decided to have a break now. So we've called for everyone to come back. The A&A don't want to come back. They're hanging out. Even though the shots fired. Yeah, I don't care. This is Afghanistan. The shots are fired all the time. So they're out there now sitting down. I'm terrified that there's going to be people coming out of, the, out of this house. I'm, I'm worried that there's going to be people. We're going to get into a massive gunfight. I'm, I'm 21. I've just killed someone. And I'm laying behind my rifle, half shaking, going, now what? And is this the first guy you've killed? First person I've killed. So I'm like, well, now what? I'm not moving. I'm there. I'm eagle-focused, exposed, but I'm there. So the Afghans decided they weren't coming back. So now I've got a, a five-man, six-man Australian brick moving to me, exposing themselves to get to where I am, get back. Afghan army people now rolling through, rifle over shoulder. They don't care. They've come back. They don't really want to walk the distance to get up to this place. We've got motorbikes coming in and out of the, this house because right on the road. To me, it's a scary time. Just lost, lost a mate. Friends have been injured. In my mind, this is about to kick off and, and we're, we're, we're exposed. We don't have the numbers. Our call sign comes in. We just go, no, nah, we're just going to hit this house. We're going to go through it. We can't, just, we can't just walk away. So this small, small team, Australian brick, moves to the compound and goes through it and clears it. A bunch of people rock up and they grabbed this dead Taliban by his feet, dragged him across the road tipped him in the shallow grave and threw some rocks at him. They and they were like, okay, now we're done. Let's go. This is the kind of, you know, you hear how the Taliban or, or people would treat someone killed or died. I mean, I watched them drag this person, brain leaking out the back of their head across the road and flicked some rocks on him and put a flag on it and walked away. That's how they treated their fighters. That's how they treated their people. And what about the family or residents in that house? Uh, it, was a, it was a Taliban house. We found out later the special forces have hit that house multiple times. It is a known place for Taliban residents. So there's no family in there. Did you find any ordnance in it? Yeah. Or? Oh, no, they, the, the special forces had previously, like a week or so ago. I think this was an opportune target. I don't think they were expecting you know, to see anything or do anything big. And next thing you know, he's got a, some Australians walking by, have a, have a crack at him from a distance, walk out the front, jump on a motorbike and go by the time we get there. And had our intel tipped us off that this was a hot house? No, intel sharing, mate. Come on, that doesn't happen. They sh we should have known. Yeah. <laughs> we get kind of like this could be an area of interest, or this could be a place with Taliban frequent. Not a few weeks ago, months ago, or wherever the special forces went in there, and there was heaps of bad people. Sometimes it, there was a communication breakdown. One thing that that I found really interesting after the engagement, this older gentleman walked down from out of a field and gives me this big thumbs up and a big smile and just keeps on walking and in my mind I didn't even see him like I'm eagle-eyed here right I'm by myself and this old guy comes down and I look at him and he's nearly on top of me I'm like oh this is not where I want to be but he just gives me this big thumbs up and points at the round casing that came out of the rifle where it, to let me know where it was gives me this thumbs up and keeps on cruising but when we got up to the house in the and they were doing that, there was a call to prayer at the wrong time. So they normally do a call to prayer at certain times through the day. And when they did the call to prayer, Johnny, who was our interpreter, he started crying. And I was like, oh, it's a weird time to start crying. Like, you've already seen the, the body. You've already, why are you crying now? And he goes, we've got to go or we're going to die. And I was like, mm, interesting, because I think the call to prayer, we'll never know. It, could, it didn't translate very well at this stage. But I think the call to prayer was pulling, maybe not Taliban fighters, but just pulling people together and probably just going to explain what happened. But then that puts us at a greater risk. After we returned from that patrol, 
it's a weird kind of thing, right? So after every engagement, there's an investigation. So I was investigated and cleared very quickly. It was a good kill. We go back to doing your job, right? So there is no incident happens like this and then there's a pause or a break. It is incident happens. What happened? Bang, 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 bang. External investigation from headquarters or, or from the entire account. Yep, everything's good, good kill. Job's on. So 21 years old, lost my mate. Paul's been wounded. First person I've killed. Guess what? That means nothing. You're back on job. Like you're, you're going back out. And where we lived at the patrol base, it was kind of weird as well because there was a rocket hole in the HESCO, the side of the HESCO, and it's gone through a Connex as well. They actually killed an Australian soldier previously. Actually, just on that, by coincidence, I know someone here whose mate, it was his son that was killed. Yeah. And it was just this freakish accident. Yeah. And but they didn't repair anything. Like, it's still there. It's a weird, weird kind of place because you're there to be front side focused, outside doing your job. But when things have happened and tragedies have happened and it's inside the patrol base, it's kind of like just yeah. left. No one, would, no, nothing was safe over there. No, no. And we'd have people visit our patrol base, we'd have different units come to us and we lived in the best patrol base. Cutis was the best patrol base. Running water, flushing toilets. The, the difference was we were- Internet sorry, home. Internet, yeah. Three, it was four people to a room and you, and you slept on a stretcher, but that, it was fine. Like it, it was good. We did pickets every night. There's never a day off or a night off or anything like that. And you become so ingrained and used to it that everyone knew what everyone was doing. And we tried to, to work closely with the, the Afghan National Army, have dinners and stuff with them. And sometimes worked, sometimes didn't. But it, it was trying to build that trust if things go bad that they're there. I remember one, I think it was, it was at the patrol base. I, I don't know what time it was, but it was late at night. And I get tapped on the shoulder and they're like, we see someone digging. We think they're planning an ID. Can you come down with your long rifle? So I come down, get perched up. Can't really see. So, so, so how far out is this guy? 300, 300 metres. But it's pretty dark. It's pitch black. 300 metres easily can be touched, right? So 300 metres is fine. But you don't, you don't just be shooting in the dark, right? If you can't identify, can't really see properly, our night vision wasn't really picking it up. So we decided we're going to shoot some alum in the air through yeah. the 84. Yeah, throw a flare up. We're doing the 84, so it sounds like a bomb's gone off, like they're loud. Jeno, one of our guys, Fridge, he shoots it up. Super loud. And this person has just stopped. And I'm like, it doesn't look like they're digging. Kind of looking, okay, it's kind of watching. But he didn't move, right? Like he's terrified because he's heard an explosion. And now, he, stu- he stood up? Yeah, yeah, but now that, now that the sunlight's out, as it went down... Um, we're like, you know what we'll do? We'll shoot a couple of little flares up and we'll just try and catch him because he won't hear them go up. It'll be quite loud. Anyway, we shoot this up. He was going to the toilet, right? So they thought he was digging, but all he was really doing, you know, was going to the bathroom. But when we shot this flare up, he was halfway through and it followed him all the way down <laughs> and, and landed right like near him. He was trying to move out of the way while he was doing his business and then came up the next day and gave us the little, like the... Uh, the, the empty little, canister. You yeah. know, the little oh, parachute the, that yeah. the flare comes down with? And he's like, here. I'm like, mate, what, firstly, why not a, not a good spot. Why are you going in the toilet there? Yeah. Secondly, very close to dying, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And he's like, oh, I just don't like, I don't like defecating. He didn't say those words. He doesn't like defecating near his home. So he goes out to the patrol base where a bunch of Australians and Afghan soldiers are. And some of those Afghans, if they were doing, you know, what they normally do, which is mm. just shoot at anything that moves, it would have been in a spot of bother. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, so it was a – oh, and I rode a donkey the next day, which was the highlight. It was like riding a horse for someone as short as me. So it was – yeah, we ended up buying it off the, off the locals too. Tell us about your IED encounter. Yeah, sure. So I was the last person on a patrol. We were coming home, back to the patrol base – and we're going past the place where I killed the Taliban. We were trying to get the Afghans to cross the river system because you know if you're on a patrol, you don't like following the same route, right? So if you go if you go one way and you go back that way, there's a good chance you could find yourself in a bit of mischief. You know, IEDs could get in contact with the enemy. You try and zigzag and keep the enemy guessing. The ANA didn't want to do that. They wanted to go back. Now it's hot. We've had enough and we're going this way. If you want to come with us, fine. If you don't, you're on your own. Oh, we don't really want to cross this 50-metre dry kind of riverbed because we're very exposed. We'll just follow them back. 
So I'm the, the last Australian in this group. Just gone past where I had the engagement and we hit an aqueduct. Everyone's kind of hopping over it. I've got to rock in to rock back to jump, right? So I'm not very tall. I've got a big backpack on. I've got a long rifle. I've got a 66 on one side and I've got a, a warm back gun on the other side. So you're loaded up. I'm loaded up, right? I'm prepared for some battle, right? So this is, and I've gone in, I'm like, oh, geez, I can't jump over this. So as I've rocked forward, when I went backwards, bam, ID goes off. I flicked back, thrown me back, and I've landed kind of looking up, not really knowing what's happening, can't hear, can't see. Didn't know I got blown up. Didn't know what happened. Just know that I've ended ended up getting catapulted to the rear. My medic, Tom Howe, has run from the, the front. So big explosion, fire and dust everywhere. He's like, feels dead. You don't survive a blast like that. He still puts his own life at risk, runs, jumps through the blast site, and we know that the Taliban will sometimes plant multiple to, to hit multiple people to hit first responders. He doesn't care. He jumps through the blast, exactly where the blast is, grabs me, reefs me back, rips my gear off and starts doing first aid and starts looking. I can't see because I've got all this pepper fragment in my ballistics. I'd have no eye if I didn't have ballistic glasses on. I can't hear. I've got brain fog, so I can't really think properly can't really uh, articulate the conversation correctly, and I don't know what's going on. He's looked over. I've got no bits bleeding. Everything seems to be in place, but I can't. Like, my equilibrium's going. I can't stand up. I can't hear, and my brain just feels like it was just getting pulled either side. It was a scary thing, but I didn't, I didn't know for probably until the next day really what happened uh, in the sense of, of the blast. We were thankful. I'm thankful. These uh, mortar tubes that were in there were old and dug in poorly because the, it was in the mud. It was in the, the, the clay. So where it exploded, it, it literally just went straight up. Some frag went out, but most just went straight up. It was command detonated, so there was someone watching and waiting. I've got a conspiracy theory that, that it was, I was targeted. You know, we were in the exact same area as when we got in that engagement. Short fellow with a long rifle. Yeah, I got medically evacuated back to the main base and just by luck the head surgeon that was there was a Dutch ENT specialist so I go and see him bandaged up still concussed still not really fully fully there they tried to take my weapon off me I didn't let them it was just a part of the how they do it but in my, in my mind I was still confused about why you'd do that why why disarm me the doctors there were, were really good the nurses were awesome and then when I went and saw this ENT specialist, he just looked at my ear and he's like, you've got to go back to Dubai now. So we ran out of Q8, then we went to Dubai. You've got to go back there and see the hospital. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Go back there, take a tablet. I don't know, get a high five and come back. This is how my, my brain's kind of working. Dr. Challen was the Australian um, doctor there and he was trying to manage my expectations. And I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'll be fine. You know, ENT specialist said, just got to go to the hospital. Okay, so I have to take certain tablets, couldn't fly, still couldn't hear. My brain still rings, still got tinnitus, and I'm just getting all these headaches. And so they were planning me to, to go see a doctor. They checked me out of the, the hospital or the, that TK at Tarankau and moved me into accommodation. And then I had a nurse assigned to me. A runner came and saw me and said, you've got to go see the RSM and the CO. You've got to go see the, the head person of the deployment, which was a two-star or three-star or equivalent Dutch person. So we were still working with the Dutch and they still had command over the, the area. Went over, I'm in a singlet, shorts, thongs, like I don't know what's going on. Yeah, get given a certificate, Dutch commander's commendation. And I was like, okay, I don't, don't really know what's happening. Get this handshake and yeah, it was kind of like a goodbye thing. Yeah, I, I still didn't know what was happening. Like I was dressed horribly, you know, to be doing this and walked out and they said, oh, your stuff's all packed? And I was like, okay, still thinking. I'll just leave some stuff here. I'll be coming back soon. Jumped on the plane with the nurse. There was a bunch of other people that some special forces guys that were injured. Uh, I think two of them had parachutes not open, so they were, they were quite 
That's, half, pretty, that's pretty serious. Half open, I think. Yeah, they, they opened a bit. They, they survived, and but like broken legs and backs are all busted up. I went up, flown out and landed in um uh, in Dubai. The doctor came on, and it was made very clear, very quick to me that I won't be returning, and I need to go into the hospital, and this is where I'll stay. And I was like, oh, sucks. Don't want to do this. I was, to be honest, I started getting real pissed off because the communication wasn't clear, and it probably was super clear, but to me at the time. When I've still got the concussion, I still can't hear 21 on any clear messaging. It felt like no one really wanted to tell me what was happening. And so I'm taking this medication, I'm taking all these different medications. They're like, okay, we've got to wait and we'll, we'll fly a nurse from Australia to Dubai to pick you up and fly you home. So it'll be in a couple of days. I convinced the person running the base there to allow me to go on day leave to go out to the shopping centre and things like that. So I get checked out of the hospital and they're like, okay, you must be on this bus to come back. You are stable to walk around. Here is a phone. Call this number, if anything. This is the group that's going. As soon as I went out, as soon as I got there, I went straight to the pub. I jumped over this little barrier in, in Dubai. There's kind of like a ring around the nice area. And once you get over this little barrier, it's not the nice area anymore. It's this ghetto. And so I found this ghetto and I found a place called the York International. It's a pub. I found myself in there. Found some, some other Australians that were there as well. And uh, yeah, I just turned it on. I, I don't know when I got home. I don't know how I got home. I know that a few people looked after me because there was some people from other nations there trying asking if I had my passport on me and stuff. Like it wasn't a good place. And I wake up back at the base. They're into me. Absolutely into me. And I'm still trying to work out what's going on. Yeah, they, they threatened to charge me. They said, I'm going to go to the cells. They don't care that I've been blown up. Your infantry soldiers are all the same. Because I was the first infantry person to go there because we just finished with QA. So I'm the first infantry person, non-special forces, to rock up at this base. We go through this. They're like, we don't care. You're under our, our command. You will be. You'll be going to the cells. You'll have a, a nurse and a doctor sitting there making sure that you're okay. You should never have been allowed out. But this is what we're doing. And then I, I started, started kind of thinking, okay, how do I get out of this? They didn't give me a uh, brief on the base. So I said, you haven't briefed me on the base and what I can and can't do. And they just looked at me. And I was like, you didn't tell me that I couldn't drink. You didn't tell me that I couldn't leave. You didn't tell me that I couldn't do this. I'm just a private soldier out here just trying to, you know, following orders and they were furious, but I didn't get charged mm. and I got away with it. I shouldn't have, but I did. They moved my plane forward. I, I left quicker than I was supposed to and they sent a nurse from there with me, which made them understaffed and resourced because they just wanted me gone. And so I land back in, in Australia and I get moved quickly into Townsville and I get checked into the hospital on base. It was not, okay, go home, you're free. It was, no, you are going to Laverack Base Hospital. You are not to leave. You are under medical care, medical watch. This is what you'll do. They figure that, you know, you still can't hear. Just haven't gone, seen any specialists yet. Still got headaches. Still got ring in the ears. They say, well, okay, you spent some time here. You can be signed out. Like I'm a piece of equipment, right? So I'd be signed into someone's care. So I was signed into my best friend turned girlfriend turned wife, Jenna. I was signed into her care. We're 21. And I know I keep saying that because all this trust has been put into a bunch of 21-year-olds. And uh, I got signed into her care. She's never known of a person being injured like this. She didn't. She's not a nurse. Doesn't know how to look after me or, or what should and shouldn't happen. And so, yeah, signed into her care and she goes, what should we do? And I was like, let's go to the pub. And this became a regular thing. What was actually happening is I was trying to come to terms with why I can't hear, why I've got memory loss, why I feel the way I do. I felt like a coward. I felt like I've let my mates down. All my brothers are over in Afghanistan fighting and I'm at home. Like I felt horrible. This started a really, really nasty decline in my mental health. I was going out, I was getting into fights, I was ending up in hospital, I was causing trouble, police were involved at, at stages. And then I would speak to my friends overseas and 
I just wish so much to be back there. I would do anything to get back. I went and saw the doctors. I tried to get them to falsify my hearing. I tried to get them to send me back over. I probably had a complex like if I wasn't there, then couldn't protect my friends. That's how I was thinking. I don't know why, but it's just what was going through my head. I started going, getting more fuzzy. I started going unconscious. Like, so I'd be out, whether it was at a, a nightclub or a pub, even at a shopping center, I'd go unconscious. And Jenna would have to roll me on my side, clear my airway, and call an ambulance. And then I'd get bleeding noses. I, I didn't know why. To be fair, that neither did the doctors. They didn't know what was going on. They thought I was going unconscious. I think at the start they thought it was an alcohol thing, but it's not. Turns out I had a... Um, a small bleed on my brain and I had a traumatic brain injury that was not diagnosed because I didn't get an MRI. So I got blown up and I didn't get given an MRI. I probably just slipped through all the cracks. And to be fair, I wasn't the best patient, so I probably wasn't waiting around for anything. And my best friend was rolling me on my side, making sure my airway was clear, making sure that an ambulance picked me up and I survived. That's a lot of responsibility that a friend has, especially at, at a young age, still still wanting, you know, she has her whole life ahead of her. And, and here I am being in hospital every two days. The really bad spiral started then. And my unit, and I'm glad they've changed it now, but my unit said, I know what to do. We will say, don't come to work for three months. So I had no accountability, no life accountability, no kind of purpose to get up in the morning which then just made me spiral even worse. As my mates were still overseas, as they start to come back, they started to go through what I was already well and truly in the rabbit hole in. Because if they were nearly unwell or, or unwell, whether it was mentally or physically, they just got told not to come to work. It is the worst thing you can do to someone, especially at a young age, especially who have gone through traumatic events, is to say, don't go to work, don't have accountability, Good luck. Because all that does is push people into a further spiral. So when did you end up leaving the, the army? I left in 2012, but I didn't parade since I got back in 2009. So October I get back. I didn't parade properly again because I hadn't seen people with injuries and then they hadn't seen people with mental illness in kind of like the, the scale that was coming back, the... The reaction was, I will just give a medication and they don't have to kind of work, which is horrible. And Paul, my mate who lost his leg when Ben was killed, we were just sharing medication. We were getting into this deep rabbit hole of very poor mental health. So I've got medication for the pain that I was going through for my ear, for my brain, and he's got obviously medication because he now doesn't have a leg. There was times where Jenna came around and I'd been there for like a day and a half and I didn't even know. It felt like I just got there. It was just this terrible spiral. And then when all the guys came back from overseas, we just spiraled together. Right? It was bad. I moved away for a little bit and Jenna thought and rightly thought that moving away would hopefully snap me out of the spiral, get my injuries under control. Uh, I was diagnosed with mental illness, get that under control. So I was diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. So getting to your new normal. So it's not normal, it's your new normal. My new normal was memory loss, brain injury, can't hear my right ear, and now a mental illness. So I need to get some some sort of stability. And how did you hooked up with your mum at all? Not really. Like we spoke every now and then, but I just thought everyone, no one understood what I was going through. So when you, when you think no one understands... Well, well that's a fair comment if yeah. you're one of the first guys back with this. Yeah, but they, mum and other people, they, they care and love you. But when you think no one, no one understands, you go into your own shell and it's you versus the world instead of allowing people to come in. Did you not think that perhaps since, you know, the army had clearly let you down there, that perhaps you should have taken your own medical research and, and done your own diagnosis? You know, like going to a GP, going and seeing a specialist to, to, get, to get this MRI. Yeah. Man, do you remember when you were 21? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's not something that would go through my mind. I'm 35 now. I doubt it'd go through my mind now, right? Like I was confused. I was upset. It was me versus the world. I was not, I don't think I was capable of, of sound kind Judgment. of thought. Yeah. And, and even at the hospitals that they wanted me out quicker than in. And so when we moved away, 
we started going through not medical research, but more just trying to get back to the normal, the balance. And Jesse Bird would, would come stay. He was getting out as well. And he, he was, he's another brother and he died by suicide. And so when we started going, going through, obviously I was a bit further ahead of either the spiral or the recovery than everyone else because they were five months after me, they got home. And moving away, Jenna grabbed me and there was beer cans and alcohol everywhere. And she's like, who do you want to be? Because sitting at home doing nothing and drinking and at early hours of the morning. Like, is going to kill you. Yeah, waking up at 7 a.m. going, oh, what am I going to do today? I had nothing to do today. So what do I do? I've got beer. Why not? I had no accountability and I had no life purpose. I had nothing to wake up and go, I really want to do this. I did with Jenna, but in my mind, she's now my life partner, right? So what do I want to do? I got told not to work again. That's something you shouldn't tell. So, are you on an army pension or a DVA pension at this stage, or? Oh, so now? Yeah, no, then. Then, yeah, sort of. You do get looked after because you need money of, to keep living, and yeah, yeah, financial side of things that takes a long time going through the department. It's tough too, right? So they, I'm 21 in there. They're giving you your pay, but then don't do anything for it. So whilst there's a sacrifice for it, there was just pay rocking up to my bank. So then I'd go drink it all. Jenna put me in front of the front of the mirror and, and kind of was like, who are you and who do you want to be? Because this isn't the person that I love. And that was the first kick in the bum, pulled me out from the spiral. We ended up moving back to Townsville and that was, I think, the best thing for me. And I started doing things in mental well-being and suicide prevention. So, Phil, how do you go from there to the Invictus Games in 2014? When I started doing stuff in mental well-being and suicide prevention, I started working closely with with others that were wounded, injured and ill from their service. We get a phone call. So Paul was going and I get a phone call saying, would you like to come? In 2014, Invictus Games had a team of 10. There was no one going. The Australian government wasn't supporting it. The RSL paid for it all. It was not this big thing you see now. It was for every other country. It's not for ours. And so, yeah, we went over to London. I did powerlifting, rowing. I did all these things, did everything. I wanted, doesn't mean I was good at, but went over there. You participated. Yeah, we weren't athletes, right? Like <laughs> Other teams were athletes. Um, uh, Mickey Ewell, he, he got bronze at the Paralympics for powerlifting. He was in the UK team, like, and he missing both of his legs from Helmand. And, yeah, so we went over. It was cool. It was very surreal. We got treated like rock stars, which is very different to how anyone's been treated before. You met Prince Harry or, or Harry now or, or I don't know his title, but Harry will do. Harry, Harry will do. He was there. He was good then. <laughs> I liked Harry then. He was there. We, we went to the American Ambassador's Residence, which is football fields. Every, like it was huge. The Foo Fighters, they played just for the athletes and their families. So, and you're walking around and there was like eskies everywhere, just beers in it and whatever. And I was like, this is wow, this is fantastic. This is heaven. Huh? Yeah. I then walked over to the stage, found my way out the back, walked into this room and there's the lead singer of the Foo Fighters and Harry sitting there having cigars and, and, and I just sat in there and I was like, this is cool. Started drinking some scotch and smoking cigars with the time Prince Harry and, yeah, and so the Foo Fighters. Seeing how the other life lived. Yeah, I was like, this life's good. Yeah, my wife found me. She's like, I've been looking for you. And I'm like, this is where I am. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm she, staying. Yeah, yeah she's just laughing. And that's the fun kind of side of, of it. The real side of it was I got to meet people that were just like me from other countries around the world, whether it was the US or Georgia, whether it was Italy or the UK. You got to meet all these people that were just like you. Some had very, very significant injuries, like burns down faces, missing arms and legs, one, two fingers. And others had the invisible wound, which was mental illness. And having people that were just like you around you all the time. And accepting of you. And, oh, and the dark humour that came with it, which is the humour we have and the conversations around it. I've got lifelong friends from the UK. When I did powerlifting, we didn't have a power, we didn't have coaches. And so Ben, who was the UK powerlifting coach, grabbed me and goes, you can just train with us. So another nation I'm competing with has grabbed me and said, you don't have a, a coach or anything, here's our team. They've got like a team of 10, nearly more than all of our people we went overseas with. He goes, you can train with us. So I trained with them for like a couple of days. I think it was like four or five days. Harry rocks up. We get Prince Philip, Charles, all these people just rocking up. And then they came over and they're like, 
you're not one of them. And I said, no, nah, I'm from Australia. And I told them what they did. They were like, that's exactly what we wanted this to be. Not country versus country, but veterans together. Made friends that I, I speak to regularly and message regularly and lifelong friends. Phil, if we move forward now to 2018, mm-hmm. that was quite a year for you. Can you share with us some of the notable events? That, so that was... That were, was were you were honoured? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was trying to think of something else, why it was a notable event. Yeah, I was the Queensland Young Australian of the Year for my work with veteran suicide and mental wellbeing. That was an interesting thing because I think I was 30 or, or 31. Not very young, right? So I get this letter saying, you've been nominated, you're in the finals. So I have to go to Brisbane. There's a bunch of awesome other people there in the same category. And I get my brother to come along. He, he lives on the Sunshine Coast. And I was like, oh, cool. We'll be able to go out after and have dinner and you know catch up. I wasn't even listening. I wasn't paying attention. I was talking to, to my brother. I don't even think I was wearing a suit. My name gets called out. And I was like, oh, yeah. I thought it was an acknowledgement. I was like, yeah, thanks. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I'm here. Present. And uh, yeah, then, then it gets called again. And then the person in front goes, you know, you just won. And I said, won what? And they told me. So then I had to quickly get down there, answer a bunch of questions, give a speech. Yeah. And then I was like, this is wild. This is crazy. Okay. So I do that. And then I get back to Townsville and my face is on all the monitors at Woolworths. So Woolworths does a sponsorship. They sponsor the, the youngest strand of the year. So they put in all their states, in every Woolworths, they put your face and what you got. So throughout Queensland, here I am on this in this little monitor. That makes you feel weird, right? Like, and then people are asking you questions. So we're doing that. We get told we have to go to the national awards. You come down to Canberra, and I get down to Canberra, and they give you this app on your phone, and so you're in a group chat with all the other young Australians for their state. I was like, okay, I, I saw a couple from a distance. And they kind of look over, didn't, didn't know what to do, look down, walk away. And I said, no, nah, not having this. So I sent a message out going, hi, everyone, so I am. I'll meet you at the bar downstairs in you know, an hour. Let's all just catch up and have a chat. I get, can I bring my mom? I'm not 18. I'm, I'm like, oh, geez, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so they come down anyway. And we have this chat and we end up all getting along really well. Sam Kerr the captain of the Matildas, who also plays for Chelsea in um, soccer, she wins the award. Super humble, super lovely, and super deserving. All the, all the group that was in the, the young category, we're all still friends. We're not always agreeing on everything, which I found, but we, we do respect each other and we do talk, which is even better. I think later on in that year, I was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for my work in particular with combat veterans. Phil, what I'm sensing here, or certainly hearing, is this transition in you, from very active to disaster to a really melancholy, you know, sad position, and then you've pulled yourself out, Invictus has helped you tremendously along the line, you've then been recognised, you still have this service theme in you, and that takes you to your current occupation. Yeah, it definitely does, and like you said, I went through real rough times, and I easily could have been another statistic. My name could have been chiseled on a wall at the Australian War Memorial, which some of my mates are. I'm just thankful that Jenna pulled me out of that dark hole. Brad Carr and Jesse Bird, people that I call mates and brothers, they lost their battle to their war within. They died by suicide, and it breaks my heart every day. And that's one of the reasons I got into politics, because it sounds weird, but I take responsibility and the failures of us not being able to help our mates. And now if a veteran succumbs to their war within, I take it as a failure of mine and government to have been able to, to do the right thing and help them get out of their dark hole because that could have been me. We need to be better. I fell into politics. I'm not a, not a politician. If you look around Canberra, I don't see myself and you, don't, you wouldn't see me and others. But tattoos down my arm. I cause a lot of trouble. I'm a, I'm a rat bag of a kid when I grew up. My service is different to others. My experience is after. And I think that it wasn't a place I was going to fall into. It was a place of service. So when I got tapped on the shoulder and said, have you thought about politics? I said, yeah, sure. I could be the mayor one day. Sure. And they're like, what do you like? And I said, oh, I'm 
Veterans Affairs, Defence, Border Security, Indigenous Affairs, Northern Australia, all these things I'm, I'm rattling off, immigration, defence industry, and, and they're looking at me going, that is nothing what the mayor does. Okay. Now, have you thought about federal politics? I was, I was like, sure. I didn't even know there was a Senate, right? So when I got tapped on the shoulder and I was going to put my hand up, I didn't know there was a Senate. Didn't know what they do. To be honest, I still don't know what they do. Mm. But uh, I didn't know this existed. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. Talk to Jenna, you know, my wife. And she's like, yeah, life of service. This is, you'll be able to continue to help and you'll be able to do it at this national macro level. Like, cool. Yep, we're in. Well, what you need to do is tell us about all the bad stuff you've done so we can be aware. And I was like, Whoa, strap in. We're going to be here a while. So I told them everything, everything I've ever done, bad, good. I think they were a bit surprised. Uh, and I said, oh, you know. It is what it is. Yeah. The first question I've got is, have you ever been in an altercation? I was like, a fight? They go, yeah. And I go, yeah, yeah, a few. Like, Many years ago. And I said, sure. Like, okay. And they're like, not recent? And I said, oh, no, not within a couple of years or anything like that. And they're like, a couple of years? So they were all like wide-eyed lawyers, you know, the Liberal National Party executive who are very, very conservative, yeah, yeah. D- getting more diverse. And But they're like, well, wow, okay. So they're starting to get a little bit nervous, but I'm all in now. Put my hand up for pre-selection. I pre-selected against the former member for Herbert in Ewan Jones, who gave me a lesson in politics pretty early about running hard and fast which was a baptism of fire. I beat him, and then I went up against the current member at the time, who was a Labor member. I was still learning, didn't know what, how to do it all. People helping me were really good, but it was, it was new because people will stop you in the shopping centre and go, what's your opinion on blah, or, or what do you think about X? And Especially outside Woolies. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I'm giving Woolies a plug here. Um, yeah. But, yeah, they, it was really good. You could start to, to frame how you as a person would represent people if you get elected. And I like that. People put their faith in me on election day in 2019, and I don't take that for granted. And it is the greatest honour ever bestowed upon me to represent the people of Townsville. And we try every single day, every single day to do the right thing and help people. Get my first day in Parliament, like flying to Canberra, so weird, because you don't have mentors. We are in government at the time, so you have... Prime Minister, all the ministers, and all the other people, backbench people. But no one goes, all right, I'm assigned to you three, and I'm going to teach you everything. I had to find out where the toilets were. I was getting lost. I didn't know when how to do this voting stuff because everyone expects you to get into politics knowing how it works down there, and no one teaches you. You have to learn what a division is when the bells ring, what side to vote on, and if you're on the other side of the building, how long it will take to get to the chamber before the doors are locked when a division happens. No one tells you that you should go to the bathroom early in the morning before because you don't want to be caught going on the toilet when the bells ring. And I was like, no one told you this. There's all these things that they, people expect you to pick up. And then in the same sentence, representing the people of Townsville always. So I'm Townsville's voice in Canberra. I am not Canberra's voice in Townsville. So I will not be told by a prime minister or a minister that no, Townsville can't have that or no, this shouldn't happen. My job is to kick them in the shins and advocate hard to get what we need. And they weren't ready for that because I think they expect you get down there and you know, Prime Minister is in charge. Well, actually, he's not. I thought at the start, Prime Minister was like the, the CEO. No, he's not. He's the captain of the football team. I can do whatever I want, when I want, and I can say whatever I want. So when I started going, okay, I'm actually like a small business owner. We're all small businesses. My business, is representing the people of Townsville. His business is his electorate, but also everything else. It's like, okay. So when I started going, no, 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 we need this in Townsville. We want to do this. They'll have taken back. They didn't know that the youngest member in parliament in 2019 would be so vocal towards them. I had a few of them going, oh, you know, the, the prime minister has to, a lot to do and run the country. I said, that's great. He can do that after he helps me get what I need for Townsville. So Philip, if you are now in Parliament, it gives you the opportunity to reflect on many things. Yep. We've been through Afghanistan and we've been through Iraq, and it's been nothing but an absolute tragedy and disaster what's happened to those places since you know we've all pulled out and the world continues to change. How do you feel about our decisions to go to those wars? I can speak more 
frankly and from the heart on Afghanistan, I wouldn't change my time there at all. If we're back in um, 2009 and, and we needed to deploy, and I would go again. And the reason for that is because our time there, we built schools for girls. We built wells for communities. We kept the bad people on the hop in the mountains and out of what they were doing throughout Afghanistan before our time there. Right now, girls can't get an education in Afghanistan. And that's the tragedy yeah. of that service. And so the Taliban is an illegitimate government. It's a non-elected government, firstly. It's made up of the Hikani network, who are a bunch of criminals, and it's made up of the Taliban, who are a bunch of terrorists. Their nation is going to collapse because right now they don't have enough electricity, they don't have enough income. There's places that have massive blackouts, can't put any heating or anything like that on. Kabul is a functioning city. Kabul is, is not the regions or a rural area where, where you see on TV where there's koalas or mud hut houses. Kabul has normal roads, elevators in hotels. It is exactly like you would think a, a Western country would have. There's blackouts there at the moment. There is people in the outskirts of Afghanistan who are selling their young daughters, younger than 10, to be married to the Taliban. That's what we're seeing right now. When we were there, this didn't occur. And if it did, it wasn't in plain sight like it is now. We also got, for two decades, there was young girls who could get an education, go to university and get great jobs. And many have traveled around the world and now are employed. That future for young women or girls right now is gone. Our time in Afghanistan, I think, was important. I think that we created multi-generational future, especially for young girls. And the people that serve there should hold their head up high because what they did, they did make a difference. I don't think there's any disputing that those that went and served did so with distinction and your loyalty to all those that serve is right. I mean, unless you've served, you just don't get it. I just think, as we all do, what a tragedy that that good work has been taken away and the sadness has gone back to that place. We always had to get to a position where the Afghan National Army was going to have to take control of their military and take the fight themselves. We knew that was going to happen. The withdrawal from the States and from the UK, how quick that happened, we, we can't stay there by ourselves. We're not big enough to be able to, to hold, hold by ourselves. So we, we have to move with our partners, our coalition partners. So when they made the decision to withdraw, we had to do the same. Really sad thing is as we withdrew, the Afghan National Army, some parts took the fight up, others just gave the equipment over. So you have the Taliban, very well-equipped military. Doesn't mean they're tactically sound, but they're well-equipped. And they took over quickly. But as soon as we left, and, and the 1st Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment, was on the rescue mission. So they flew in to, to help out with evacuation. And they did a fantastic job. They really, really did a great job. When everyone was pulled out and the Taliban said, as the, this new group that had taken over said, we won't hurt anyone, we won't do anything to, to any person who may have helped whatever nation. As soon as we all pulled out, they flew a helicopter around Kabul with people hanging from underneath it. Yeah, the retribution. Yeah, yeah. they are gutless cowards. Philip, are there any other thoughts or reflections that you'd like to share with us today? The only thing I, I kind of reflect on for myself is from where I started to where I am now. The reason I come on this isn't to talk about me, it's to show post-traumatic growth. Bad things happen in your life. doesn't matter whether it's through service or if you've been in a car accident or you've lost a loved one, bad things can happen in your life. It's how you bounce back. So that post-traumatic growth, you have to grow from the bad things that happen. Resilience is a rubber band. When you fall down, the rubber band goes down, but it has to bounce back higher and past where you were before for you to grow. And we should be talking about that. Not every veteran or defence member is broken. And if they are, that's okay too because they are resilient and capable. And we as a nation need to acknowledge and thank our ADF brave men and women. Without the hard-fought battles that they've been in, we wouldn't enjoy the freedoms we do today. 
Philip, you've served your country in uniform and now in public service. Thank you for all that you continue to do, especially in the veteran space. And thank you for coming and talking with us today and sharing your life. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Angus Horden, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. For two other interviews with recent veterans who then went into politics, you can listen to Angus's Season 5 interview, number 109, Keith Wallahan. I was given a brief as a junior barrister as acting for some commandos who were charged with serious war crimes related offences. Obviously, that's something that a lot of special forces veterans are sitting around waiting to start that process. And it's not easy. And I watched them go through that and you feel like you're on your own. And my season five video podcast, number 102, Heston Russell. Watching the guys go out there and do that so often without ever fearing for their own lives, not in any form of cowboy heroism, but just for the fact that we had a job to do. We trusted each other so much and we were more fearful of letting each other down and failing the mission than we were of our own lives. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thank you for listening. Unless we forget. <laughs>